tattoo eve that's what i call it when i get a tattoo oh my god is it yeah that's weird it's the night before a tattoo that makes sense yeah but okay i want to go to bed now so that it comes it faster, faster. <laughs> like christmas <laughs> yes is this your christmas is tattoo time yeah okay <laughs> i like it cool cool cool, cool. i dig it welcome to who knew welcome where we talk about whatever we things want. and stuff you sound so enthusiastic. I am so enthused. <laughs> I'm actually very excited about this episode. Me too. I'm... She she got in on some of my research a couple nights ago and was into it. Yeah, but I don't know the full story. I still don't know anything. I know. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm but excited I was also too. really excited that you were into it. So I'm like, oh man, if she likes this one random episode she's watching <laughs> that has no context whatsoever, no she's going to like... The story. <laughs> is, yeah, that is very true. I'm very excited to six, check it out. Six, 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 six. See the full story, because what I saw, I'm very confused. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> is he gay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Great question. It is a great question and a very good uh, cliffhanger for your episode, so if people want to know. Yeah. Um, how was your week? It was fine. Okay. <laughs> Was it? No, it was a rough week. I don't know. My mental health is just not... I don't know what it is. Haven't been spot on. It happens. It happens. We are moving along now. So we do things we enjoy doing, like getting tattoos together. Oh, and no. tattoos, yeah. <laughs> tattoos and podcasting. Yeah. That's all that matters, yeah. really. We'll get a tattoo of that. Of a podcast? Of tattoos and podcasting. Somebody get that. I'm not getting it. I'll get... I'll get it. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, should we just jump how, right How in? was your week? That was good. Average. Oh, that's anticlimactic. <laughs> I had a two-day work week, so it was pretty Ugh. good. Like, I'm so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could flex off time like you guys flex off time. Well, I had a two-day work week because I had I army. And I wish I had another job that allowed right. for me to get yeah, yeah, yeah. extra fair. time off from that's my fair. job. That's fair. Um... No, it was good. Good. I'm glad. Nothing too crazy, but not so boring that you just want to drive off a cliff, so it was good. I love that analogy. We don't have cliffs (laughs) here, so it's fine. Yes, we do. Name one. Horse tooth? Not here. Oh my god, it's close enough. No. It's like a 15 minute drive. Mm. Not even. Mm. Take Wilson. (laughs) Okay. Anyways. I think you're first. I think so, too. I... This is going to be a very, very, very long episode, guys. We both have a lot of notes, and they're very big stories. So, I'm just going to dive right into mine. I'm talking about... I didn't... I forgot to look up how to pronounce his middle name. Whoops. Um, Whoops. Whoops. I'm talking about John Eleuther Dupont. It's the only time you have to say that middle name, Thank and now you can God, just say God, I'm that. just going to call him Johnny Boy. I'm oh, just good, kidding. good, 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 good. good. <laughs> no, it's John. He, the, which, I'm just going to, I'm the surprise isn't going to make any sense, because I'm going to be covering three character backstories before I talk about my true crime part Love of it. it. So, okay. I'm just going to say, I'm covering the murder of Dave Schultz. Perfect. This whole fox catcher thing is intertwined with it. If you've seen the movie, great. I'll talk about it here in a second. But let's get into John DuPont. He was born November 22nd, 1938 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's the youngest of four children. He has 
older sisters named Jean and Evelyn and an older brother named Henry. He also had a younger half-brother named William DuPont. He was the third child from his father's second marriage, so a little confusing. He doesn't really matter, but good to know. Father of John was William DuPont Jr., and his mother was Jean... Just kidding, it's Jean... Making her name a lot fancier than it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm apparently still on the Xavier episode where I'm right. trying to make everything fresh. Flash like JonBenet Ramsey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think you. it's the DuPont thing where I'm like, whatever. Her name is Jean Lister Austin. His parents divorced in 1941 when John was only three. And in the divorce, Jean was able to keep the estates where John would grow up in. It's because the estate was given to the, to John. I keep saying John. Jean, fuck, it's given to Jean and William f- from Jean's family as like a wedding gift. So it was like it's like a dowry. A what? <laughs> it's like a dowry. What is a dowry? That's when, uh, you, like, in arranged marriages, you would the the groom would receive a dowry for marrying. Whatever, doesn't matter. So the estates uh, started at a just a mere two hundred acres when John was young, but with his parents being business of horse thoroughbred racing, showing and breeding, they easily expanded it to eight hundred acres, which they called Lister Hall Farm. That was in Newtown Square, which was just outside of Philadelphia. And apparently he spent a lot of time in his childhood secluded in this estate, this large eight hundred acre home. He didn't have any friends. He just basically was at this home, well, mansion alone with his mom. So it's a pretty lonely life for a kid. And it's really sad because one time he was very excited to have a friend, which was the son of his chauffeur. Oh. (laughs) And uh, only to find out that his mom paid the son to do it. How sad is that, that your mom had to pay somebody to be your friend? I'm not sure if she paid him because she felt bad for John or if she, like, wanted him to have friends or, like, what her reasoning behind it. I'm, like, hoping that it was, like, good-natured, but it's, like, gotta fuck with his mental state a lot. Um, So he is heir to the DuPont family fortune. He's the he's one of more than a thousand living members of the famous DuPont family. The family they built the powder mills in Will- Wilmington, Delaware, in 1802, and this all started because here it is again. Fuck, Eleuther, Irene DuPont, who was his great great grandfather, like made this mega business. He um made it into E.I. DuPont Numers and Company, which is a giant chemical company that's still, like, around today. The family for six generations had been just business. Like, they're all just businessmen and women and non-binaries right. and stuff. But when John was young, he really had no interest in all that. He was like, I want to be... I'm sports. Sports are so appealing. They're so interesting. And I feel like especially the time that he was growing up in, like, the mid to late 1900s that's when it was really like taking off i don't i really know zero about sports so i'm just imagining that this is when things are hyping up i don't know i mean if we only have like super bowl 50 yeah okay i'm like (laughs) justifying it as i'm talking i'm sorry if i'm incorrect (laughs) for those who know sports but he really likes sports 
that made him a bit of an outcast in his family because he like showed no interest in everything that they were interested in. And in an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer in 19- Business and Caviar. What? Business and Caviar. That's what they were interested in. Oh, yeah, 100%. I <laughs> thought that was like some kind of slogan of something that I didn't know, no. like a TV show. No. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Business and Caviar. <laughs> So, in an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1991, John said, quote, Wrestling was thought to be the sport of ruffians. Someone like John DuPont should not wrestle. It wasn't a country club sport, end quote. So, it's kind of weird that he, like, talked about himself in the third person. But also, it's just, like, his mentality of how his family, I guess, treated him on that. So, he was obviously very bitter about all of that. But he was a very smart guy. John graduated in 1957 from Harverford School, which is an all-boys prep school in Harverford, Pennsylvania. While in school, he competed in wrestling during his freshman year. And that same year, at just the age of 19, John founded the Delaware Museum of Natural History. (laughs) Okay. I know. He's got (laughs) money, man. Um, But he was also... I'll talk about this in a little bit more when he goes to college, but he was really interested in, like, birds and, like, biology and like nature and animals and stuff like that so i mean it makes sense that he would do a museum of natural history as his thing anyways senior project i know (laughs) but his freshman year (laughs) skipped a couple years yeah so he after that started dipping his toes into the university of pennsylvania he only went there long enough to belong to a fraternity and then withdrew before the end of his freshman year oh so he was probably like oh i like this this is party hard and he's like nah fuck that John, I don't know, he's kind of a socially awkward person, too, so I really can't see him doing very well in a fraternity. So then he went to Miami, Florida, where he went to study one of his passions, which, like I said, is wildlife. And he, while there, he swam for varsity, so he was a pretty good swimmer. And he graduated in 1965 with a Bachelor of Science in Zoology. Baccalaureate, is that Mm -hmm. what it's supposed to be called? To say bachelors. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to seem educated, you know? Um, so that same year, he graduated from Florida. He also competed in a pentathlon championship in Australia, which... Do you know what a pentathlon is? It's like a triathlon, but it has five. Yeah. I had no idea. It's like, I understand they have all these athlon things. <laughs> Means nothing to me. So... A modern pentathlon um, is an Olympic sport that is composed of five events, which is fencing, freestyle swimming of 200 meters, an equestrian show jumping of 15 jumps, and a last combined event of cross-country running for 3,200 meters and pistol shooting. Mm -hmm. That sounds awful. Yep. No, thank you. (laughs) So, whatever. He competed in that. Um, Not sure how he did, but in 1968, John even hosted the U.S. Pentathlon Championships on his estate. So he kept it going. Sometime after 1968, while he, but while he was in his 30s, apparently John suffered an injury while riding on a horse. The horse threw him into a fence where he got injured, like, like man injured, like. His junk was no longer in the correct trunk. So, like his balls. His his balls got infected and then had to be removed. 
I know, big bummer. I, ugh, I'm so sorry. People sometimes link this to future behavior and actions to the murder. So, foreshadowing. Then in 1973, he got his doctorate in natural science from Villanova University, which is a Catholic university yeah. in Villanova, Pennsylvania. <clears throat> and after that, John did some scientific expeditions to study and identify species of birds in the Philippines and South Pacific. Pacific. <laughs> and as an ornithologist, John is credited the birds. With, yeah. And it's weird. Um, But John's credited with the discovery of at least two dozen species of birds. Isn't that wild? Yeah. That, like, in 19... Like, in the 1970s that we had two dozen species of birds that were unidentified? Yeah. The world amazes me. So, fun fact, this has nothing to do with anything, but I thought it was fun because you like to collect coins. Um, John had an interest in collecting stamps. And at the time of his death, he owned one of the rarest stamps in the world, which is the British Guana. I'm not saying that right. I know it. Um, British Guana 1856 1C, I'm assuming one cent, black on magenta. That is literally what it's called. Um, and it was sold at an auction for $9.5 million wow. after huh. he died. Cringe. That's so much money for a stamp. I can't imagine, but... Whatever. I don't get that. I know, right? It's weird. Hmm. So in 1976, John managed the U.S. pentathlon team at the Montreal Olympic Games. So that's pretty cool. Though it was his dream to compete in the Olympics himself, he never qualified. So that's a big bummer, but at least he was still involved. On September 3rd of 1983, at 45, John married a 29-year-old woman named Gail Wenk, who was an occupational therapist, and they met after his hand was injured in a car accident. Not after he got Not his balls. The Not the balls. Okay. A little bit after. Cool. Um, so they ended up not being able to live with each other longer than six months after their marriage. And John filed for divorce after ten months. Hope you do better. I mean, we've already been living together good. for... <laughs> Anyways. So Gail sued John for five million, stating that he had pointed a gun at her and also pushed her into a fireplace. Unknown if the fire... That was my first If question. there was a fire... <laughs> In the fireplace, but there was at least a fireplace at the time of the incident. It's not even the weirdest thing I've ever heard, like... Oh, yeah, with the shit that we have to deal with. So it's unknown if she won the lawsuit, but I imagine she did, because, like, what, five mil... Or, like, they at least settled for something, I'm sure. He has a stamp worth nine million. He can yeah. handle a five million dollar payout. Like, Literally, he... Sell your yeah. stamp, and you still have money. Yeah. So, in 1985, John opened a 14,000-square-foot training center for wrestling on his family estates. So, then, in he opened up the center, but then in 1986, he had his first financial involvement with wrestling, which was at Villanova University. He um, served as head coach of the wrestling program, but not only did he serve as head coach, he also founded the wrestling program. So, they didn't have a wrestling program before this. He was like... We're going to make a wrestling program. I like wrestling. Wow. I'm going to pay for it. And I'm going to be the head coach. And they're probably like, sick. If you're going to pay for it, whatever. Do your thing. To assist with him, he got some big names in wrestling. This is not like WWE. This is like Olympic wrestling. Like what you do in high school and stuff. I just want to clarify that in case anybody's confused. Anyways, 
So we got some big names in wrestling, which one is Mark Schultz, who we'll talk about in a bit, um, and Dave Schultz, who we will also talk about in a bit. So then, as I mentioned, John comes from a very wealthy family, so don't get a heart attack when I start telling you about this next point. So John spent $600,000 on the wrestling compound that was on his family estate, and he contributed several million dollars to the sports programs at Villanova, not just his wrestling program. So I don't know if that's like bribery or like some kind of manipulation at its finest. But what do you mean? What I mean, I mean, Villanova doesn't put up with his shit. You'll find out here in a second. But, like, in order for him to get his way, he's like, well, if I create this wrestling team and do whatever I want and I can do this and that, I'll help fund your swim team. I'll help fund this team. And he's, like, giving money to other teams that's not just okay. his. So I think he was trying to use that to, like, make them look away from what okay. he's doing. But it okay. didn't work. Thank right. God. Apparently, according to officials, whatever the fuck officials meant to my source, I couldn't clarify. I'm assuming it's, like, university officials. They thought it was weird that John would treat players lavishly, but he would fly them to places in his Learjet, and he would allow them to stay at his estate, and that would violate the National Collegiate Athletic Association, which is NCAA. Yep. Um, that would... <laughs> violate their regulations and that could put not only their wrestling program in danger but also all of their other athletic programs that he was funding in danger um so there are also reports from the philadelphia daily news that the program indeed did violate these requirements but for more than just that one was an accusation that mark the one that we just mentioned mark schultz one of his assistant coaches had given players alcohol um, even to some of those who were underage. Oh, God, not alcohol. I know. But, I mean, <laughs> if you get caught, that's not... It just doesn't look good. You know what I mean? Especially with I the do. laws. I do know. Yeah, because it's your, your job to, like, do that. Anyways. Also, I played college rugby, so, you know. It's just a drunken rugby player over here. <laughs> So sometime during this, John established an Olympic wrestling club, which he called Team Foxcatcher. So he recruited top wrestlers, which included Mark Schultz, who we just talked about, and his older brother, Dave Schultz. Some of these wrestlers, John offered free housing at the estates, um, and Dave and Mark were two of the few. Dave was head coaching or some type of leadership um, or maybe just a nice face for Team Foxcatcher, which he was John's second choice. His first choice was Mark, but Mark quit pretty quickly after getting the coaching position. This team ended up being successful. It had trained several of the biggest champions at the time, and the the world, like in the wrestling world, it trained some of the biggest names, so it was pretty successful. In 1985, John's divorce was finalized, but removed Gail from inheriting any of his estates, which I'm sure she really didn't fucking mind. Um, that same year, it is reported that he was worth an estimated $200 million, so really fingers crossed for Gail to get her money, you know what I mean? Yeah. In December of 1988, there was a lawsuit which claimed that John had made sexual advances to a Villanova assistant coach, Andre Metzger, who is a very decorated wrestler, 
which may have also led to the short-lived wrestling team. I think I might have forgotten to put this in my notes, but the Villanova, once they found out about all of his weird shenanigans, they shut down the wrestling team. So wow. it was only like for like two seasons or some shit like that. They Dang. Yeah. Didn't even last for very long. So it was stated that at least in the beginning of the 1980s, so all the things that I've talked about since he got married in 1983, John was known to drink heavily and be under the influence of cocaine, like constantly. He reported to have no control over his temper, and he lived in a fantasy world where he was an accomplished wrestler and athlete. Which is not at all what is true, <laughs> but he would get upset if others didn't play along with his idea and yeah. fantasies. So he was living with delusions and he was also paranoid. He also had an extensive firearms collection, which he reportedly always had a handgun on him, which, I mean, isn't illegal and it's not a big deal. It's just a big deal if you're under the influence of drugs and paranoid yeah. and all of these other factors. Yep. So according to allthatsinteresting.com, John once opened fire on a flock of geese because he was convinced that they were going to use dark magic on him. Uh, Not the dark magic geese. Here's my thing. Yeah? <laughs> like, obviously, I'm a cop. I'm in the army. I support the Constitution, you know, Second Amendment, yada, yada, yada. However... Just like it is a privilege to drive a car, right? Yeah. If you're not suited mentally, physically, how, like what have you, to drive that car, then that gets taken away from you because that is a deadly object. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So. And rant. And rant. <laughs> like. I agree. I, I don't know. It's a topic that is not for today. No. No. But, but this dude should not have had guns. He should not have okay. had even a collection of guns. No. <laughs> um, but... My mind shouldn't have either. Don't worry. Um, hint, hint, hint. Hint, hint, hint. Kind of. Go ahead. So, in 1988, when John was 50, his mom died, and many report that after she died, his paranoia and erratic behavior only got worse, which gave me low-key Bates vibes. Ooh. <laughs> Just because... You know, when his mom died, he just kind of went down this, like, psychological spiral. So, after her death, John renames the estate's Foxcatcher Farm after his father's famous thoroughbred racing stable. And at age 55, John began competing in the 1992 Veterans World Championships in Cali, Colombia um, for wrestling. So... He did that again in 1993 in Toronto, Ontario, again in 1994 in Rome, Italy, and again in 1995 in Sofia, Bulgaria. Um, I don't know how he did in these championships. I couldn't find it, so I can't imagine he did well. Sure. But he competed a lot as a veteran wrestler. Throughout his time with Team Foxcatcher, however, John kept spiraling so much that he apparently kicked out Kevin Jackson and two other wrestlers. And I'm so sorry about this, but I have to talk about it because he was now saying that Foxcatcher was a KKK organization Ooh. and wouldn't allow black wrestlers. Oof. Yeah. Good lord. Fucked up. So fucked up. So. That's unexpected. I know, isn't it? Like, he just went fucking crazy. He also pulled a machine gun on Dan Chade, and Dan went to the... All of these names I'm saying are famous wrestlers, so you can look them up. They're very good. They are awarded... No. Is that what you say? 
They're decorated sure. athletes. There yeah. we go. Um, so Dan went to the police the next day because he felt John was escalating and thought that this needed to be reported. Very smart, Dan. And he said, quote, he crouched down in an attack stance, pointed the machine gun up at my, up at my chest and said, I want you off the farm now, end quote. He was saying that about John. Okay. Isn't that cringe? Yep. So I don't know exactly when that incident happened, but it's the only one that's police documented. And so it was maybe like mid-90s. So about the time he was competing. So we get now into 1996. Um... But before we get too far into that year, I need to talk about someone else who is relevant to the story, and so I'm switching over to Mark. Mark Schultz was born October 26, 1960, in Palo Alto, California. His parents are Dorothy Jean St. Germain and Philip Gary Schultz. His older brother is Dave, who we will again discuss in a second, and he has two half-siblings, Michael and Shauna, or Sina. It's S-E-A-N-A. Cena. I don't know. It's like C. Nah. Anyways. But it's also like Sean Connery. Yeah. I feel like it's Shauna. That would be right. That would make more <laughs> sense. Um, so early on in Mark's life, he was interested in gymnastics and he started to compete. And in high school, he won the Northern California All-Around Gymnastics Championship for his age group. And then in his junior year, he switched to wrestling. In senior year, he didn't win any tournaments until the state qualifiers, where he won the league, region, and section, and the state. So he is the only person... Uh, in his high school history to, like, have no wins and then just win it all. Okay. Yeah. Then he won three NCAA championships while at the University of Oklahoma from 1981 to 1983. And during his senior year, he went undefeated and he has the record for most victories in a single season without a loss. So that's pretty impressive. In 1984, Mark won a olympic gold medal in wrestling and won the world championships in 1985 then in 1986 mark was fired from being the assistant coach at stanford university and i don't know why couldn't find it but that's when john offered him the job at fox catcher farm but as we know that didn't last very long uh, mark had the position but didn't keep it because he felt like john was treating him like a toy that john bought with a seventy thousand dollar salary he was mentally drained from the way John treated him, and it took him away from his focus on the Olympics. So when he started, like, losing his um, meets, he just quit. He was like, I, I can't do this. This is clearly not what's the best for me. So then in 1990, Mark named a Christy Eileen Thompson. Sadly, they divorced in 2014, but they have three children. Mark David, who was born in 1993, Kelly Kristen, born in 1995, and Sarah Jessica Parker. I'm just kidding. Just Sarah Jessica, 1999. <laughs> <laughs> um... But from 1991 to 1994, he was the assistant wrestling coach at Brigham University. <laughs> Brigham Young University. Of course. I know, right? I just thought that was so funny, so I had to put that in there. Um, Mark also dabbled in some MMA competitions and, like, UFC stuff huh. after he retired from wrestling. Um, but I'll get, like, that's not really relevant, but it's just kind of interesting. So now we're caught up to 1986 for Mark. And now we're going to talk about the main attraction, which is Dave Leslie Schultz. Dave. Great middle name. I know. I kind of like it, though. Anyways. 
Dave was born June 6th, ni- June 6th, 1959, also in Palo Alto, California. I'm not going to talk about his family because I just covered that with Mark. As a kid, Dave was bullied for being overweight and he suffered from dyslexia. Same bro. And he had a bit of a tough go there as he was younger when in junior high he started to wrestle at david star jordan middle school there in palo alto and there uh, then when he was a senior at in high school at palo alto high school in 1977 he became state um, wrestling champ he also won all kinds of competitions such as a silver medal at the tobolsky tournament which I think was somewhere in Russia or somewhere like in that area. Um, and that was the highest place. He was the highest placing American, which was quite impressive at that age. Um, while wrestling two weight classes above his normal division, Mark beat out all his components, components, all of his opponents, except for the last, but he beat him in the final match. So, I think what I was trying to say was that he, like, beat them, like, what did they say? I think they said something about, like, they, he, like, put them, what is it called wrestling when you, like, take down? Pin. Pin. He pinned them all, except for the last one, but he won in the last round, apparently, because they score that shit or something. Yeah, yeah. Don't know very much about wrestling, so I'm sorry if I'm getting this confused. Um, he also won his first national title by winning the U.S. National Open Grick. Gregoroman, that sounds right, championships. He also won an award at the most falls in the least amount of time. Maybe that's what it's called, falls. In the... I should have done more research about wrestling before I did this. <laughs> in um, the 167-pound weight class in college, Dave was a three-time NCAA All-American, first at Oklahoma State University and then twice at the University of Oklahoma. He His record was 91-8 to at Oklahoma State wow. University and then 61-4 to at University of Oklahoma. Damn. He has a very good record. So, then in 1981, he meets Nancy Stroffel. They met as students at University of Oklahoma. They were both athletes. Nancy was a gymnast. And after a year of dating, they wanted Nancy to join him on, like, his wrestling travels and stuff for the college. But she couldn't unless they were married. So, what do you think they did? They had a two-week engagement, and they got married. And eventually, they have two kids together, Alexander and Danielle. So after college, Dave won 10 senior national titles, eight in freestyle wrestling and two in Greco-Roman wrestling, which was over a 19-year span and three weight divisions, 149.9, 163, and 180.5. Him and his brother then were the first American brothers to win freestyle wrestling medals in the 1984 Olympic Games, as well as the World Championships, where Dave won in 1983 and Mark won in 1985. So not the same years, but they held the same titles, and so they were the first American brothers to do that. They weren't the only ones, though. There were a few other names that pop up. Anyways, this was kind of a big deal, and it was such a big deal that they were even honored by the then-president, Ronald Reagan. Hmm. Dave also served as an assistant coach at the University of Oklahoma, Stanford University, and the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Cool. And then he was coach for Team Foxcatcher. 
And I know that was a lot, but we're caught up. <laughs> we're caught up. So just a little bit about Dave and his uh, personality. According to one of Dave's friends, Mike Gostigan, Dave was the only person who could really handle John DuPont by saying, quote, Dave was the person closest to John. He was a calming influence, a confidant, but Dave wasn't a yes man. If John said he saw things coming out of the walls, Dave said nothing was coming out of the walls. I think John might have harbored some delusional fear of him, end quote. Hmm. So... Another friend, Kevin Jackson, who we talked about before, stated, If it wasn't for Dave being at Foxcatcher, nobody else would have gone. He was a legend, just one of the best wrestlers in the world at the time. Yeah. So I think that speaks more about what Foxcatcher meant to people than what John, I think, thought it yeah. meant to people. <laughs> right. Um, so now, January 26th, 1996, at 1400 hours, which is 2 p.m. for you common folk. Um <laughs> Two days before Super Bowl 30, John grabbed his 44 caliber Magnum and told a security guy, Patrick Goodall, Goodale, Goodall, Patrick. He told Patrick to drive him to Dave's house. And once there, Dave answered the door and said, quote, hi, boss, with a smile and a wave. And John then pointed the gun at Dave's head and said, you got a problem with me? And shot three times. Wow. He shot Dave once in the arm and twice in the chest, and Dave was dead at age of 36. He That's aggressive. Yeah. Um, Patrick, the security guard, at first wanted to, like, run and check on Dave, but then he remembered, oh, fuck, that guy's got a gun and he's unstable. So then he took his own gun and pointed it at John, which John just simply drove away and then barricaded himself in the home. Amazing. Amazing. So brave. I know. Um, this is where Nancy, Dave's wife, calls 911. Police arrived and for two days, a total of 70 police officers and SWAT members held ground at the estate. They used all sorts of tactics, but nothing worked. Eventually, this is so funny. They just turned off his heat and froze him out, and he um, got arrested when he got out of his home to fix his furnace. Too easy. Too easy. They should have done that <laughs> a long time ago. Keep that in your back pocket anytime we have a barricaded subject. <laughs> just turn off his heat. Right. Um, Dave was later cremated and put to rest by his family. However, there's still a trial that needs to happen. Apparently, John's lawyer tried to pin everything on Patrick, the security guy, but no one bought it because the bullets used, uh, the bullets that were used, um, were the nine, or I'm sorry, the 44 caliber, and the gun that Patrick had on him at the time was a 38 revolver. Um, so definitely not. Right. <laughs> compatible at all so his john's lawyer was fucking full of shit are we surprised um so not surprisingly john pled not guilty by reason of insanity Mm. uh after more than a week of deliberating the jury found him guilty but mentally ill of third degree murder 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 um And then he was also found guilty of assault for pointing the gun at Nancy. John was sentenced to 13 and a half to 30 years in prison. Um, Nancy also won a reported $35 million in a civil lawsuit settlement with John, I'm sure, for wrongful death or whatever. Um, While he was incarcerated, John got a psychiatric evaluation and was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic who believed that Dave was part of a conspiracy to kill him. 
I mean, makes sense. Yeah. So Nancy says that while in prison, John still hired um, private investigators to watch and videotape her children coming and going from school, which is super fucking weird. And it seems like John had some fucking fascination with the kids because when Dave died, Danielle, Dave's daughter, expressed to her grandfather um, that she was scared of John because she thought he was going to kill her too. Like, she was a little girl. Yeah. Like, they don't just come up with that stuff. No. So, in 2000, John's attorney filed appeals and appeals and appeals until his case finally reached the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court upheld the verdict. <laughs> Thank God. Um, so, then in 2009, John tried to appeal his conviction, but lost again, and he was denied parole twice. His parole denial is apparently because he refused to believe the law enforcement reports on what happened the day Dave was murdered. <laughs> so he was, like, contesting what it was. Like, uh, any wow. person that's not mentally healthy would. Um, but John, unfortunately, died in a... Pens- I don't remember which Pennsylvania prison. I just put a Pennsylvania prison on December 9th, 2010, at the age of 72. I think it was, like, heart issues or something. Sure. Yeah. So... Just a little bit of an epilogue. After Dave was killed and with John arrested, Team Foxcatcher was left without training or coaching resources just six months before the 1996 Olympic Games. Yeah. So that sucks. But this is when Nancy comes flying in on her Wonder Woman plane. What does she write it on? I don't know. (laughs) Lasso of Truth. She has an invisible plane, right? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Nancy comes in and she founded the Dave Schultz Wrestling Club in March 1996 to sponsor the stranded wrestlers through the Olympics. And this succeeded more than people thought. And it continued to train athletes in both men's and women's freestyle. And I'm sure not just white people. Sure. Um, but, uh, sorry, men's and women's freestyle wrestling and the Greco-Roma wrestling until it closed in 2005. Since Dave's death, USA Wrestling has hosted the annual Dave Schultz Memorial International Wrestling Meet at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which I did not know was here, so that's really cool. Yep. Um, in 1997, Dave was posthumously inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame as a distinguished member. Um, Kurt Angle, someone who Dave helped coach and um, was assist, he was also Kurt was assisted through um, Dave Schultz's wrestling club after Foxcatcher was canceled. He wore a singlet in his early World Wrestling Federation career that was in tribute to Dave. So a singlet is there uniform for those who don't know because i didn't i googled it and found a bunch of dudes in singlets and it was not (laughs) what i wanted (laughs) um bummer it was a big bummer i don't know know either um so then the dupont estate went unmaintained without john's presence but once he died the land was purchased by the toll brothers which is a company that specialized in luxury home building and they destroyed the estate and basically turned it into a community of 449 gnomes, better known as apartment complexes. Good for them. <laughs> I know. Um, They're like, fuck this guy. Yeah. Also, the estate, I didn't put this in there. It was used as a, because he did um, Olympic shooting with his pentathlon or whatever. Um, 
he had like a shooting center in the estate and it was very often used before he created the fox catcher wrestling component of it his shooting range was used by the law enforcement for their qualifications and stuff so yeah it's kind of a fun fact but anyways four months after dave died mark completed no mark competed and won an early mma event at ufc 9 then mark kept up with his MMA competing, and after retiring from wrestling for eight years, he became the first Olympic gold medalist to enter UFC. Cool. Cool title. Mark then wrote a New York Times best-selling memoir, Foxcatcher, The True Story of My Brother's Murder, John DuPont's Madness, and the Quest for Olympic Gold in 2014. That's a lot. That is a very long title. (laughs) I thought it was going to be done, and then it just kept going. Um... (laughs) So, all of this is amazing since Mark was quoted by People Magazine stating, quote, Losing Dave was like losing my anchor. Dave was like a one-man cult and I was his follower. When he was killed, I was left free, f- floating free, wondering what to do, end quote. Which I can imagine if you're, like, so close with your brother. I can I cannot imagine how that would feel to lose him, especially so tragically. Ugh. Then... So in the media, as we talked about when I first started covering this in 2014, the movie Foxcatcher came out, starring Steve Carell as John DuPont, Channing Tatum as Mark Schultz, and Mark Ruffalo as Dave Schultz. It's what? It's a very good movie, and Steve Carell will fucking surprise the shit out of you. So fucking good. Well, so good. Watch this with you. That's why I brought it. I wanted to in the beginning, but now I really want to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nancy, um, Dave's wife recalls when she arrived on the set with, um, her daughter Danielle, she received a note from Steve Carell stating, quote, this is what she is stating about the note. So she says, he said he was sorry for our loss, but he couldn't come meet with us while filming because he had to be John DuPont in 1987. Um, but we talked after the film wrapped. Cool. Which I think is super cool that yeah. he was just like, hey, I know that you're here. I'm so sorry, but yeah. I can't do this because yeah. I'm a method actor. <laughs> I okay. think that was like one of his first serious roles. So I think he really had to like get in probably really a different mindset. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he kills it. In 2005, director Jesse Vile produced the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called The Prince of Pennsylvania, starring Mark Schultz, Dan Chade, Taurus Wachek, and John's wife, Gail Wenk, or John's ex-wife, I guess, and many others. Um, It also tells the story of Team Foxcatcher and the murder of Dave. Then in 2016, Netflix released their own documentary called Team Foxcatcher, which recounts the paranoid spiral of John and Dave's murder using archive footage of the two, and it has 100% on the Rotten Tomato rating. Have you watched that yet? I have not watched it yet. I wanted to wait until after. Cool. So I hope it's good. It has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, come on. That is, like, you know, unheard of. Do you know what else has 100%? Toy Story. Okay. So, I mean, like, but, I mean, Toy Story is a very good movie. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. That's all I have. That is the murder of... That was crazy. Dave Schultz. Wow. So fucked. Phenomenal. I feel really bad for his family. I do, too. Well, yeah. Yeah. Especially Nancy, because she was there watching it all happen. That's awful. Poor Dave. He was just like, hey, boss, what's going on? 
Fuck. So fucked. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so, um, my story is really similar to yours. That's weird. Actually. That is very weird. Um, we keep doing these things. We're like, we're like, let's pick like similar topics, but not really know about what the other person's right. doing. And then right. they end up being pretty parallel. Yeah. It's like, it's like we live together. But that doesn't mean, okay. <laughs> um, so I'm telling you about Aaron Hernandez. Woo! He was, like, big, like, a year ago when that documentary on Netflix came out. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you his whole story. Starting with, um, he was born on November 6th, 1989, um, to parents Dennis and Terry. And right off the get-go, Dennis and Terry had all kinds of run-ins with the law, um, Tons of financial issues. They were both party animals, but mostly Dennis. So he would go out and party, leave the kids. Like, that was a huge source of contention between them, and they had drug issues. So, okay. Um, Aaron also had a brother who went by DJ at the time. So it was just DJ and Aaron, and then Dennis and Terry. Um, Dennis was very physically abusive to the kids and to Terry. Um, one time. Uh, DJ was stabbed in the forehead with the metal plug-in, the the plug-in portion from a vacuum, because he was in the middle of doing his homework, and he was tapping his pencil. He was trying to get it done so that they could go out and do, like, play, whatever, go yeah. wherever they were going to go, and he was tapping his pencil, and Dennis got pissed off, so he took the plug-in from the vacuum and just stabbed him in the head with it. What the fuck? Did yeah. he, like, drag the vacuum down the hall with it? I think he was... Va- I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so that's just, like, one of several. Um, okay. And I won't go into all of those, but, like, yeah. that's a fairly, like, good example of, like, the level of abuse that was going on in the house. Like, completely unnecessary for right. tapping your pencil. Right. Aaron uh, was very athletic for, like... From the beginning. Um, but he also, like, starting out as a young kid, had a lot of injuries to his head. Um, one time he and DJ were in the garage. They were working on something. DJ had a hammer in his hand. And the hammer swung out of DJ's hand. And it hit Aaron between the eyes. And caused him to darn near lose consciousness. And he started bleeding from his ears. Oh, my God. A second time he... Uh, Aaron was ice skating, and he literally just went straight into a wall. What? Straight into a wall, hit his face, gets up, and he's like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Both of his teeth, front teeth, were out, like, major concussion, so. <laughs> two of many examples, but oh my th- there's two for you. Like, did he not even try to stop? Was he just like, whoop, I'm going into the wall? Or did I, he not I realize the wall was there? I don't know. I'm not a great ice skater, so I can't really... Yeah, but I mean, like, there's... I would rather hit the ice than hit a wall. Like, land on your ass versus landing on your face. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know Um, either. And then, kind of get Like, as he was getting older, he started having a lot of anger issues that pretty much just looked at... Or looked like him... He, he would say that he was blacking out and he would go into just, like, a blind rage, which often became violent physically over little things like video games, like, little arguments with DJ, like... So little things would make him just go baby. fucking ape shit, and then he would not remember doing it. What? Mm-hmm. So, when Aaron was 16, um, 
they were eating dinner one night and Dennis kind of started to get some pain in his uh, abdomen. He played it off like nothing. Ended up being like, hey, listen, I, like, I'm not feeling super good. I'm going to go to the hospital. I'll be fine. Everything's fine. Um, he was admitted to the hospital after having, um, like I said, about of what he considered excruciating gut pain, which um, I think says a lot because he was like a very, he was seen as like a man's man, like very tough, very, but he was like on his knees with this. Oh my gosh. Ended up having a hernia. They oh took him into gosh. surgery and he died on the table. For a hernia? Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, Aaron had a really hard time with this because he damn near worshipped Dennis despite, like, all the training. Like, Dennis would make him, before he would go out and play, he had to shoot 500 uh, free throws. Like, that was the level that he was... He, he saw this. Yeah, he saw a very, like, obvious talent in both of his sons. And so, from a young age, he was trying to, like, propagate that. But he did it in a way that was, like, maybe a little bit overboard. So, despite the rigorous training and rules and structure and the abuse that we talked about, um, Aaron really had a hard time when his dad died, so. Aaron ended up acting out a lot. He rebelled against authority figures, and some say he really never got over the death of his dad, which, um, would show later. Terry, his mom, uh, shortly after her husband Dennis died, it came to light that she had been having an affair with Aaron's cousin's husband. Jeff Cummings. Aaron obviously was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, Ended up basically moving in with that cousin, Tanya, since they were both kind of struggling with the news of the affair. Um, DJ was out of the house at this point, so it didn't really affect him as much. And he and Tanya ended up becoming really close during this time, and um, Aaron's criminal activity also increased. Aaron really never reconciled with his mom. There are several... Uh, jail conversations between the two where he blames her for certain inadequacies that were on his end. So he would say, like, well, I struggled in school because I had ADHD, but you would never go get me medicine and, like, all this stuff. So he would blame her for a lot of things. And he even stated, quote, you're going to die without even knowing your son. And that's while he was in jail. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's awkward. Mm -hmm. So in high school, he went to... Uh, Bristol Central High School. He excelled at football, basketball, and track. He ended up being Connecticut's Gatorade Football Player of the Year and a U.S. Army um, All-American his senior year. Hmm. He was super popular, and then he first started dating his future fiance Shayana Jenkins, during high school. He also smoked a fuck ton of weed and drank and partied with all the other jocks, so... Fun. That'd be a precursor of what we would see in his college and his NFL career later. So in college, he originally got recruited to play at the University of Connecticut, um, UConn, and he was only 14 when he got that scholarship. But that was because his older brother was playing there and they were really focused on like recruiting from within the family. Um, and he kind of, like, committed to them, but he really, like, he's 14, he was not old enough to actually make that decision, and he ultimately went to play for the University of Florida under Coach Urban Meyer. Meyer ended up convincing Aaron's principal to let him graduate more than a semester early. Yeah. So that he could move to Florida, join the team, and then learn the playbook, and by the time all that happened, he was barely 17. Dang. Um... So, because of that, he was not academically prepared, nor was he emotionally or socially mature enough for that kind of move. Um, 
and it really showed, and it never really got better. Um, he ended up having to take a lot of remedial courses at the Santa Fe Community Co- uh, Community College, and then he continued to use pot and alcohol to deal with all these emotions that he had from his dad dying, from his mom's situation, from the yeah. abuse that he experienced, everything. Like, he did not have the tools to, like, deal with that. Yeah. So he just used weed and alcohol and partying. To so, cope. his freshman year, um, he did fairly well for his first year on that caliber of a football team. The, the Florida Gators were, like, at the top of their game. That was the team to play for mm-hmm. um, back then. He ultimately got benched in the season opener of his sophomore year because he failed a drug test. Are we surprised? Um, he ended up starting 11 of the 13 games during his sophomore year, again, did really well, and then junior year, he led the team in receptions and won the John Mackey Award as the nation's best tight end. Um, he also made several All-American teams and conference selections, so he was just killing it. Yeah. He said later uh, that he was high on drugs every single time he took the field, um, and Coach knew that, and he ended up being told by Coach Meyer that he was not welcome back for the fourth year. So, his choice was either just don't play, or he needed to go and try for the NFL draft. So, he did that. Um, Off the field, he was quoted by his teammates as always trying to be the life of the party. Struggled in school. He took classes in college, like bowling, wildlife issues, and, quote, plants, gardening, and you. What was his major? He never really... Oh, well, declared. of course I would choose... Sh- I would choose the stupid-ass shit, too. He got mostly bees in these classes. And bees also, and... Yeah, and also had to be tutored and do remedial training. Um, and he had a lot of issues with um, the law while he was partying that were cleaned up by the team's unofficial defense lawyer, which is wild to me. Yeah. Um, it has he, nothing to do with the team. Why are you using their lawyer? Because they made an investment in him. That's so dumb. I know. So he entered the 2010 draft uh, with the NFL, but he struggled during the scouting combine because he tore a back muscle in the offseason. Um, quote, off the field concerns, end quote, were hurting his spot in the draft. And even though he was projected to be the second round pick by most experts, he ended up being um, like he wasn't picked up until the fourth round by the Patriots. And that was because... A lot of teams had all kinds of concerns about his, like, lifestyle. Um, or rumors of multiple failed drug tests, which were true. Character concerns and issues during a standard personality test that they do when you enter the draft. They figure out, like, what where your competencies are. Right. And he did really well, except he ended up having the lowest possible social maturity scores. Yeah. So they were concerned about that. So... Ugh. In the fourth round, he ended up signing to a four-year, $2.37 million contract with a signing bonus of $200,000. This was left less than half the signing bonus of the average player picked in this round of the draft, and it was a precautionary measure by the Patriots, because, like, like, we're not paying you this much money up front because we don't know what the fuck you're going to end gonna up doing it up. once you're, like, out on your own. Right. It also included monetary incentives to actually show up to practices and workouts. So if he showed up, he could earn up to $700,000 more. Oh my god. Bananas. Uh, he ended up being a backup tight end to Rob Gron- 
Gronkowski. Um, in 2012, the Patriots signed Aaron to a $40 million contract extension, and this was after he had proved to, like, he played very, very well. He was very hardworking. Um, right. Uh, they signed him to $40 million contract, which included a $12.5 million signing bonus, which was the highest ever received by an NFL tight end at the time. Dang. Um, however, he never really hung out with the team, which was weird for the Patriots because they're, like, very known for being very tight-knit. They hang out on the field, off the field, like, they call it, like, the Patriot way. It's or a whole like a thing. Family. Right, and he did not participate in that at all. Um, the team considered Aaron to be kind of a lot to handle. He was hardworking, but he was attention-seeking, and he came off often as unhinged. Bill hmm. Belichick, the coach at the time, threatened to throw him off the team in 2013. Um, so, because he was having all these issues with the team, he would just go back home to Connecticut and hang out with his old friends whenever he had the chance, which was a problem because they were not uh, really the crowd that he should have been hanging out with. Right. Um, so now we're going to get into all of the legal issues that he had, which takes up pretty much the rest of my notes. Oh my gosh. So in 2007, uh, he was 17 at the time. He had two alcoholic drinks in a restaurant with Tim Tebow, who was, uh, his quarterback at the University of Florida. He refused to pay the bill and then ended up getting escorted out by a restaurant employee. And then the manager walked away. After, like, being like, yo, you have to pay your bill. Um, and Aaron sucker punched him in the <gasps> side of the head, rupturing his eardrum. <gasps> the police responded at 1.17 a.m. And Aaron called his coach, Urban Meyer, who then called uh, Huntley Johnson, who is the team's unofficial defense lawyer that we talked about before. And then the victim later told police that he had been contacted by lawyers and the team and that a settlement was being worked out uh, privately. Oh my gosh. Which the team denied. Police department recommended charging Hernandez with the felony battery, but um, the incident was settled out of court with a deferred prosecution agreement. So the victim was like, well, no, I don't want to prosecute because we're dealing with this outside. So if you don't have a victim who wants to press charges, then you don't have charges. Right. Usually. Same year, same place in Gainesville, um, in... 2007, again, September 30th, someone approached a car containing Randall Carson, Justin Glass, and Corey Smith on foot and fired five shots while they were waiting at a Gainesville traffic light after uh, leaving a nightclub in the town. Smith was shot in the back of the head, Glass was shot in the arm, and both men survived. Carson, a backseat passenger, was uninjured. He was not shot at all. And he told police that the shooter was, quote, Hawaiian or, quote, Hispanic, a male with a large build weighing about 230 pounds, having many tattoos, and he picked a photo of Aaron Hernandez out of a police lineup. Oh, that's embarrassing. Police told Urban Meyer's personal assistant that they're like, they're like, you need to get a hold of Aaron, we need to get him into the police department, talk to him, and um, two other teammates that he had been seen in the club with. Um, that night, and detectives kept pushing the coaches to bring the players to the station, but they didn't arrive for four hours. During that time, they spoke with, again, their defense lawyer, um, and they cooperated with police. The other two players did, but then 
Uh, Aaron invoked his right to counsel and refused to talk to police. And then finally, when police walked into the room to speak to him with his counsel, um, he was the last one to be interviewed. And they literally found him with his head down on the table, fast asleep, which is weird. He's just taking a snooze? It's super weird because he's in the middle of a murder investigation. He's just like, man, I'll take a nap here. Like... It's like eating a sandwich after you've murdered your it's, family. Yep, very similar. <laughs> so no charge, no charges ended up being filed at that time. Detective Tom Mullins, who was assigned to reinvestigate the shooting later after a couple of other events that we'll talk about in a minute, concluded that Aaron was not the triggerman. Um, even though Carson initially identified Aaron Hernandez as the guy who pulled the trigger, other witnesses that night described sh- the shooter as looking like a black male, possibly with cornrows. And Detective Mullins re-interviewed Carson, and Carson rescinded his statement of that shooter matching Aaron Hernandez and said he never even saw him at the scene. Assumed he was a shooter because, quote, they had words earlier at the club. I don't know. Um, very vague. Moving on, in 2012, um, Hernandez was investigated in connection with a double homicide that took place on July 16th of 2012 in the Cure Lounge in Boston South End. A guy named Daniel Jorge Correa de Abreu, who was 29 at the time, and Safiro Furtado, who was 28 at the time, who were both immigrants from Cape Verde, were killed by gunshots fired into their vehicle. Witnesses testified that Aaron Hernandez's silver SUV pulled up next to the victims and somebody from their car yelled, what's up now, N-word that I won't say on a podcast. Or ever. Or ever. Um, Someone from the car fired five shots, killing both men. Police immediately identified Aaron Hernandez, who was then playing for the Patriots in the club security camera footage, but thought it was a coincidence that the NFL star happened to be at the club that evening. On May 15th of 2014, so two years later, Aaron was indicted on murder charges for the killings of Abreu and Furtado, with additional charges of armed assault and attempted murder associated with shots fired at the surviving occupants in the vehicle. There was a trial that began in 2017, Prosecution case, uh, Jesus, I can't talk. The prosecution case was strongly based on testimony by another guy named Alexander Bradley, who was a known drug dealer, who had been feuding with Aaron since the NFL player allegedly shot him in the face and left him to die. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they were both at the club, and each one of them claimed that the other shot or like pulled the trigger on the car. Interesting. Hernandez's attorney was Jose Baez. Do you know who he is? No. You don't. Does that sound familiar? So that was Casey Anthony's defense attorney. Um, Argued that the motive that the police were saying uh, Hernandez had was implausible and that Aaron was the suspect of convenience because he was just, he happened to be super close to these two murders. Like, it's it's weird, but they couldn't prove it. Okay, sure. Alexander Bradley alleged that Aaron was mad when they were at the club because the two victims spilled a drink on him while they were there, and he was, like, super quick to anger, and uh, the problem was a lot of the, like, security footage kind of went against that. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Um, Good thing for cameras. Right. And then, so Jose Baez then looked into the police investigation and called it, quote, an extraordinarily sloppy um, for several reasons. One, which I think you're going to find really gross. So, these guys were shot in their car, right? Right. 
the police instead of like what we would do is we would take photos of them still in the car and then we would bring them out put them on stretchers that'd be that what they did is they took the whole car bodies and all stuck it on a tow truck brought it back to the police department and they took their photos there with the bodies still in there I wonder if they have to do that because it's, like, a more populated crime area. But think about what you would do if you were, like, driving next to this tow truck and you look kind of in there and there's two dead bodies, like, just bouncing around. Yeah, I don't know. In this car. Maybe they, like, laid them down to keep them from, like... No. Oh. No, they didn't. They didn't touch them. They literally just loaded the car up as it was. Um, so that was a problem. (laughs) And it ended up being, like, a major protocol violation. Like, that was totally against policy. I don't know why they would do that, but they did, which ended up kind of being a nail in the coffin there. There was no physical evidence tying Hernandez to those murders. Um, But according to the Boston Globe, there was powerful evidence that he was at the scene and played a role in their deaths. Um, He ended up being acquitted of those murders and most of the other charges, but found guilty of illegal possession of a handgun. So he got off on that one, too. Like I said before, in 2013, he was basically, they took this, like, weird last-minute trip to Florida in February of 2013. Him and Alexander Bradley, he was, like, his uh, dope dealer. Oh, cool. So he would just, and by dope, I just mean, like, marijuana. Yeah. He supplied him with a ton of marijuana. Bradley stated that Aaron, like, chain-smoked it, which is wild to me. Um, so they ended up taking a trip to Florida, and they went to this strip club called Tootsie's, where they bring up a $10,000 bill. Um, Aaron's- how much Jason just won for being America's favorite on an Ink Master. I know. Oh my god. Um, so Aaron started getting super paranoid, and he was, like, looking at these two guys who were sitting across from them in the- in the bar, strip club, and he started thinking that they were, like, plainclothes Boston cops- And he was getting super paranoid about it. And then Bradley was like, well, they're probably here looking at you because of what happened um, outside the last club you were at. Feeding into the paranoia. Yes. So then Aaron and Alex, like I said, like Alex was, they were friends, but he was mostly like his hookup. And he claimed that on February 13th, 2013, during that same trip, he woke up in a car with Hernandez pointing a gun at his face. And then the next morning, uh, police found Alexander Bradley lying in a parking lot, bleeding from a bullet hole between his eyes. He somehow survived, but he ended up losing his right eye. But he didn't cooperate with police, like, at all. And instead, he was like, fuck that. Like, I'm not going to tell the police anything. I'm going to go get him myself. And he made that abundantly clear. Um, After that event, the two of them... uh, texted over 500 times in the next three months, which included death threats and attempts at extortion from Bradley to Hernandez. Um, Bradley told Hernandez that he had semi-automatic weapons, bulletproof vests, and a crew that ran six deep. So Hernandez is like, fuck! Um, His agent tried to settle the matter quietly, but that didn't work. Um, Alexander Bradley demanded five million to stay quiet. Aaron was like, no, I'll give you a, a a million and a half. Oh, my God. And Bradley's like, well, how about 2.5? Oh, and my God. Let's just get to Aaron three. Aaron never responded to that, but then ended up going to see Jose Baez. Oh, my God. Um, 
And then in 2013, in June of that year, uh, Bradley ended up filing a civil lawsuit for damages against Hernandez in uh, federal court. And then four days later, he withdrew it. Um, And then they ended up trying to settle it again. So blah, blah, blah. They're trying to settle, then can't settle, then trying to settle, then can't settle. And then they end up settling and the amount is never disclosed. Oh, okay. On May 11th of 2015, Hernandez ended up being indicted for witness intimidation in relation to the Bradley shooting because Bradley was reportedly a witness to the 2012 Boston Dama- double Jesus Christ. To the 2012 Boston double homicide. Um, <laughs> Dama homicide. Dama homicide. <laughs> the intimidation charge for Hernandez carried a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison, and then that charge was included in his trial for the double homicide, which began on March 1st of 2017, which we already talked about. Unfortunately, it's revealed by Bradley that he texted his lawyer about the shooting and deleted this text message, which they ended up recovering, which said, now you sure once I withdraw this lawsuit, I won't be held on perjury after I tell the truth about me not recalling anything about who shot me. Oh, my God. He found that, and then everything got thrown out. <sighs> he was acquitted of all the charges, like I said before. On June 18th, 2013, police searched Aaron Hernandez's home in connection with an investigation into the shooting death of a friend, Odin Lloyd, who was actually his fiance's sister's boyfriend. His body was found with multiple gunshot wounds to the back and chest in an industrial park about a mile from Aaron's house. Following day, uh, Hernandez went to Bill Belichick and he was like, nah, we're good. I had nothing to do with the shooting. And despite that, um, he was barred from Gillette Stadium, lest it become, quote, the site of a media stakeout. So they didn't want the media to come there, which they would have. And the team ended up deciding a week before his eventual arrest to cut ties with Aaron as if, if he ended up being arrested on any charge related to that case. Yeah. Good for them. Right. June 26th, uh, he ended up being charged with first-degree murder in addition to five gun-related charges, and the Patriots released him from the team about 90 minutes later. Goodbye. Before officially learning the charges against him, so they didn't give a fuck. They just saw him being arrested on TV, they're and like, they are like, nope, we're done. shit, bro. Like, come on. Yep. yep. Two other men were also arrested in connection with Odin Lloyd's death. On August 22nd of 2013, he was indicted by a grand jury for the Murden... Murden. <laughs> uh, indicted by a grand jury for the murder of Odin Lloyd. <laughs> he pled not guilty. Um, and then Same. on April 15th of 2015, so like two years later almost, he was found guilty of murder in the first degree. Charge that in Massachusetts automatically carries a sentence of life in prison without a possibility of parole. He was also found guilty of five firearms charges. A motive for the murder was never definitively established. Police investigated the possibility that Lloyd might have learned that Hernandez was bi, um, and Hernandez was super worried that Lloyd might out him to others. He texted him late the night of the murder and said they needed to hang out. And then surveillance footage showed the car that was rented under Aaron's name was at the scene, as well as footage of him and Shayana, his fiance, clearing out weapons that they had in the house. Did Along she with that, get charged with anything helping like him? Like accessory? Yeah. No. Why? Okay, so it was investigated, but no. I feel like there's no proof that she knew why. 
As your partner, I would not help you just start loading out weapons. That's he was, weird. He was literally like, hey, take this gun safe out to the garbage. That's not suspicious. I don't know. I don't know. It's like taking out the trash, apparently. I know. Um, so the Florida Gators basically erased his name from the records. Oh my gosh. The Patriots held a, um, jersey exchange day where you could go and if you had one of his jerseys, you could exchange it for anything else for free. Holy shit. That's all super good. All the sponsors good. dropped him, everything. So. That's crazy. He ends up going to prison and he was described as being strangely content while in jail. Which was weird. Um, he told his mom that, quote, I've been the most relaxed and less stressed in jail than I ever was out of jail. He was, however, punished on m- multiple occasions for breaking prison rules, including screaming, banging on his cell door. Over the course of four years behind bars, he increasingly turned to the Bible and became more religious. And he seemed to... No, prison officials seemed to turn a blind eye to his drug use and neglected to safeguard their famous inmate. Oh. I don't know if that's true or not, but as alleged. Uh, Hernandez could speak to his fiancée on the phone, and he usually did twice a day, but she was facing perjury charges related to his arrest. Um, he only saw his daughter that they had together when um, her mom brought her to visit, and while in prison, he reconciled with his mom, kind of. And then while being held at Bristol County Jail, he was kept in a se- segregated unit that normally housed the mentally ill and the violent. And Ugh. he asked to move out of there, but the sheriff was like, nah, we're not doing that. And then after his conviction for the murder, he was transferred to the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center, which was a maximum security prison where inmates typically spent 20 hours a day in their cells. Oh my gosh. Um... In the two years he spent in that prison, he was disciplined dozens of times. His owner claimed that he was taunted relentlessly by the guards. While in prison, he continued to work out and thought that he was going to appeal and get out and get to go play for the NFL again. Oh, that's not how that works. No. On April 19th in 2017, which was five days after he was acquitted of the 2012 Boston double homicide of Abreu and Furtado, Correction officers found Aaron Hernandez hanging by his bedsheets from the window in his cell at the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in Lancaster, Massachusetts. He was transported to UMass Memorial Hospital, where he was just, he was pronounced dead at, um, about an hour after they found him. Oh my gosh. He had been smoking K2, uh, within 30 hours of his death, and that was kind of like a marijuana substitute, but it was a synthetically, chemically produced one. Yeah. And it's um, associated with a lot of, like, delusions and uh, anger, things like that. State Department of Corrections spokesman first said that no suicide note was found in the initial search of the two-person cell, which he had by himself. Shampoo was covering the floor, and cardboard was wedged under the door, to make it difficult for somebody to get in. So, like, it was hard to get in. And then there was shampoo all over. So, people were, like, slipping and sliding, trying to get him and cut him down. Like me just trying to step out on this right. icy snow. Exactly. Um, and there were drawings in blood on the wall showing an unfinished pyramid oh with the all-seeing eye of God, God. And the word Illuminati written in capital letters underneath. And, and his then, blood? Yeah. Did he cut himself? I guess. 
Ow. On April 20th of 2017, investigators reported that three handwritten notes were next to a Bible open to John 3.16 and that John 3.16 was written on his forehead in red ink. Um, Jose Baez reprinted the contents of the notes in his 28 book, 2018 book called Unnecessary Roughness. And one short letter was addressed to Baez, which thanked him for securing the acquittal and the double homicide. And anticipating an appeal in the Odin Lloyd case, which is, I don't know if that was ever going to happen. Yeah. And then uh, two other notes were found that were addressed to Hernandez's uh, fiance and his daughter. And it was weird because the letter that was given to his lawyer was pretty straightforward and clear, while the one to his daughter was described as strange, rambling, mystical, and tender. Mystical and Tinder, like the app? No, Tender. Oh, Tender. Tender. With an E. Tinder. <laughs> Whoops. That makes no sense in the context. I know, that's why I was questioning it. <laughs> um, in those notes, he described entering a timeless realm and announced he would see his family in heaven. Well, I mean, for a kid, I feel like that's a nice way to, like, yeah. The correction officers didn't think that he was at risk. There were no signs that he was at risk for suicide, so they didn't have him on suicide watch. And then he had an autopsy done by the medical examiner, and his death was officially ruled a suicide by hanging. At the request of his family, his brain was released to the Boston University uh, to be studied for signs of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Perfect. CTE, uh, which is a progressive degenerative, de- degenerative disease found in people who've uh, had severe blows or repeated blows to the head, including football players who suffer all kinds of concussions. Yeah. Um, it's worth noting that after Hernandez's death, his lawyers filed a motion at Massachusetts Superior Court to vacate his murder conviction, and that request was granted. Therefore, Hernandez technically died an innocent man due to the legal principle oh my gosh. Um, called abatement ab initio, which is um, under Massachusetts law. This principle asserts that when a criminal defendant dies but hasn't gone through all the appeals that they could, um, it re- the case reverts to his status at the beginning. Um, so the conviction got vacated and he's considered innocent. That's dumb. Yeah. At the time of his death, he was in the process of filing an appeal for the conviction for the murder of Odin Lloyd. So that uh, that part got um, appealed as well. So people were like, well, what the fuck? Um, and then the Lloyd family was disappointed with that. Oh, I'm sure. Um, so they're... Their attorney didn't think it would affect the wrongful death suit, which the family had already filed. The appeal was heard by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in November of 2018, which was a year after he died. Um, The attorney representing Lloyd's family argued that Hernandez was rightfully convicted of his murder and that the the conviction was unfairly wiped out. Um, And in 2019... At the Supreme level, they reinstated Hernandez's conviction and stated that the trial record would note that his conviction was neither affirmed nor reversed and that the appeal was rendered, like, neutral because he died during the case. Um, So, like, basically it went back to he was convicted for that murder. 
Um, let's see. Following Hernandez's death, a high school teammate, Dennis Sansucci, described a secret homosexual relationship between the two between 7th and 11th grades. Uh, he stated that Aaron had many sexual partners during this time, and his brother, DJ, and his mom, Terry, and his another attorney that he had, like, during his time, reported that Hernandez came out as gay to his mom and his ex-girlfriend while in prison. According to that attorney, Hernandez believed that sexual abuse that he experienced as a boy caused him to become gay. Dennis Sansucci stated that Hernandez was terrified that his father would find out about his homosexuality because he made it very clear that that was not conduct to be had in that house. Um, he would call them the F word, the gay F words all the time in the house and was just very, very, like, homophobic. But he said that sexual abuse made him that way? Mm -hmm. By who? There are different accounts. Some say that some babysitters did some stuff. That's kind of what most sources say. But Baby, Fucking babysitters. I know. Shitty people. We'll just leave the dogs with our kids. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> they know how to take care of yeah. kids. Um, after listening to more than 300 recorded phone calls, the Boston Globe reported that Hernandez was prone to going on homophobic rants and that in one phone call he admitted that he was attracted to men and said it made him angry all the time. Oh my pa gosh. Yeah. Patriots receiver Brandon Lloyd said that he had been warned by a teammate, Wes Welker, um, and this was when he like got onto the team and he was assigned the locker between Hernandez and Ronkowski. That's not right. It's not Ronkowski. Ron Gronkowski. Is it Gronkowski? I think it's Shit. Rob. Gronkowski. Yeah, I think okay. so. Fuck me. I don't know. I don't yeah, know Yeah, so he had a locker assigned next to Hernandez, and so he was told by other teammates that Aaron would frequently expose his junk around the locker room, like, to the people next to him and talk about gay sex all the time. But he was also stating homophobic things? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I don't like, know. he was saying gay things, like... Maybe overcompensating with the okay. homophobic stuff. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Who's either. to say? Getting very mixed signals here. Yeah. Um, like I said, after his death, researchers at Boston University studied his brain and diagnosed him with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, stage three of four. Ooh. And described Hernandez's brain as a classic case of CTE. Um... He had two confirmed concussions since he began playing football at eight years old, but the Boston Globe believes he undoubtedly took other punishing hits to the head that just weren't recorded. And often he would take big, big hits and they would just pump him full of like painkillers and send him back out on the field. CT is associated with cumulative injuries and in a phone conversation recorded in prison, Hernandez said, I'm like a grandpa and all my bones are so sore. Owie. Yeah. Poor guy. But at the same time, yeah. it's like something he can't help that maybe made him this way, so it just makes me a little sad. I Sometimes I wonder, though, if it compounds on other traits that he had. Oh, maybe. Like, he was socially, like, he didn't deal with his emotions well. He right. was impulsive, and I think the CT probably didn't just, help that. Yeah, all of it on top of each right. other. Um, the researchers suggested that CTE, which results in poor judgment, lack of impulse control, aggression, anger, paranoia, emotional volatility, and rage behaviors might explain some of her, his criminal acts and other behavior. 
One of the doctors from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York said it's impossible for me to look at the severity of the CTE in his brain and not think that it had a profound effect on his behavior. He suffered from migraines in prison. He had trouble with memory. Jose Baez wrote that he saw symptoms consistent with CTE from his observational skills, while other times he had gaps in his memory that were highly unusual for somebody as young as him. Right. Um... His fiance and daughter sued the Patriots and the NFL for causing his death and depriving his daughter of her father, arguing that Hernandez's NFL career had caused what researchers uh, described as the most severe case of CTE medically seen in a person of his age. Oh my gosh. Suit was dismissed in February of 2019 because the deadline to opt out of a class action suit against the league had been missed, so... That's where that's Missed at. Missed by that, who? By them. They filed too late. Oh my god. Yeah. So fucking shitty. That is the Aaron Hernandez story. I love it. Thank you. I'm wondering. He told you said his ex girlfriend. So before his fiance. I think. But she has also come out. Um, after hearing that, and he, she's like, you know, I. I don't know. We never talked about it. He yeah. never said anything to me. If he had, I would have been supportive and we would have gotten through it. Yeah. So that's where she stands on that. So I think it's a different ex. Uh, interesting. Yep. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That is so crazy. Bananas. Paranoia, man. Also, extremely paranoid. He was right. so paranoid that he had a secret apartment that just had a fuck ton of guns in it. What? Mm-hmm. He hired bodyguards. He always had guns on him, always had guns in his car. Oh like, gosh. always. And he was 22? Mm-hmm. Oh my god, that is not how a normal 22-year-old no, acts. <laughs> absolutely not. That's like how a 60-year-old man acts. Yeah, he's that's like how a Vietnam vet acts. Yeah. Like, yes. That's fucking so, fucked. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for sharing. <laughs> Do you have anything else? I have a memory of a... What does he have? CTE. You have CTE? Yeah. I don't think you do. All that traumatic <laughs> band marching. There you go. <laughs> like so many horns. That's, that's what it was. I was viciously attacked by trumpets. Just like, I was at the football games, but with the band. Yeah. That's, that's where it was at. Ah, it's so fucked. I think it's interesting that he chose football if his dad made him shoot 500 hoops. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was just preferred football. He played, I mean, everything. Like, it wasn't just basketball that his dad was all about. His dad was a football player, too. How crazy. His brother was a football player, so. How crazy. Bananas. Super bananas. Thanks for your episode, your portion of the episode. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Are you tired? No. Okay. No. Well, you can find us on Instagram at Who Knew Podcast, and then you can find us on Gmail at Who Knew Podcast 666 at gmail.com, and then you can find us on Patreon. So, yes. Also, we would really like it if you reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. That's huge. To yes. Us, so. That just gets us more listeners, which gives us more like ideas to come up with new things and like we really want to cater to maybe not cater because we're still going to do if you want us to cover the bubblegum fairy that's not going to happen so sorry but (laughs) you know i don't know 
I like what we do, but it'd be nice to, like, see what other people hear. Speaking of which, I forgot to mention that my portion of this was inspired or suggested. Not really suggested. She just... Our friend Monique, (laughs) who did the art for um, our stickers that you can find on Patreon, she... When I was... When we released the Xavier Dupont de Lagones, she thought it was this Mm -hmm. case because she saw Dupont. Right. And that she was gravely mistaken. (laughs) But she had texted me and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I've always wanted to learn more about this. And then she's like, never mind. It's the wrong one. I was thinking of the wrong one. (laughs) And um, so thanks, Monique, because I was just like, what is she even talking about? And then I was like, I know this. I've seen Foxcatcher. So I was like, hmm. Interesting. So cool. I shall dive into it more. Love it. Yeah. Well, Bear just came in, which means it's time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is time, isn't it? It's time. Um, Thanks, everybody. I have a Butters here in my lap to say goodbye with. Say bye, buds. He's he not gonna. It. He tried. He tried. Okay.